0: So the podcast that you're about to hear was recorded prior to Biden taking office. Most of it was recorded in late December. The bit that you hear at the beginning was recorded after the uh, Capitol riot. Some of what I say uh, is going to come off as outdated, Uh, some of what I say held up very well. I was correct, for example, in predicting that Donald Trump was not going to pardon Edward Snowden. In fact, I'm honestly kind of shocked that a large number of people seem to have actually thought that he was going to do that. Uh, On the other hand, my sort of tongue-in-cheek suggestion that Donald Trump might threaten to launch U.S. nuclear codes if he was not reinaugurated thankfully turned out to be wrong. But I think you'll find that overall, this uh, podcast holds up pretty well and offers a pretty good breakdown of the presidential election and the fallout. So, uh, in between the time that I recorded the original this uh, podcast episode and the time that it took me to sort of start editing it and get it ready to go, the Capitol riot happened, uh, and I actually watched a lot of it on TV in real time. And I really felt that doing a breakdown of the election without doing a breakdown of the Capitol riot really wouldn't make sense. So I want to sort of talk about that first of all. So I think one thing that is getting kind of lost in the shuffle when we talk about the Capitol riot is what exactly made it so bad. So I think that when people say that it was so bad because because it was an insurrection against the U.S. government, I think that people kind of lose sight of what the real reason it was so bad was, because there have been certain situations in U.S. history when insurrections against the U.S. government have been justified. Uh, For example, when John Brown attempted a raid at a federal arsenal in Harper's Ferry, Virginia. I would not try to claim that Brown's actions were bad simply because it was an insurrection against the U.S. government. What we have to look at is what were these rioters trying to do? And what these rioters were trying to do was that they were essentially trying to use force to keep a president in power who had been voted out by the majority of the public. Now, when Trump was first elected, it was very questionable whether you could honestly say that the people had chosen Donald Trump because he lost the popular vote and won due to the Electoral College. But there's no ambiguity this time around. The American people decisively rejected the possibility of a second term for Donald Trump. And the Electoral College, in this case, wasn't enough to save Donald Trump. So what these rioters were doing was essentially making a mockery of the idea of government by the consent of the governed by trying to keep a president in power that is opposed by the majority of the American people and that the American people exercised their right to turn out of office. Now, government by the consent of the governed comes with its own set of problems. Uh, For example, the possibility that the majority, as they often do, will support repressive policies. But government by consent of the governed is certainly better than government without the consent of the governed. Again, you know, many people would argue that that anarchism is superior to government by the consent of the governed and that even in a society where we have government by consent of the governed, there need to be safeguards in place to prevent the majority from abridging individual rights. But I think we can certainly, I would hope that all my listeners would agree that government by the consent of the governed is superior to government without the consent of the governed. And once you keep a president in power after they've lost an election, you cannot have government by the consent of the governed in a country like that. It's one of the same reasons that when you have uh, prominent conservatives like Ann Coulter, Ben Shapiro, Matt Walsh, advocating that we put extra restrictions on who can vote. Now, to be clear here, they're not talking about voter ID laws. They're talking about things like people who can't pass a test not being able to vote, people who are on welfare not being able to vote, people who are too poor to pay taxes not being able to vote. And that makes a mockery of government by by consent of the governed, because you're essentially, you have people, you would have people under the system that these conservatives are advocating, who are essentially living under the authority of the U.S. government. If they break the law, they're going to be prosecuted and, and incarcerated. But they cannot, under the system that people like Coulter and Shapiro and Walsh want to see, these individuals would not be able to have any say in who's governing them, uh, but I mean honestly, with how many conservatives have openly talked about essentially disenfranchising voters until you get the election outcomes that you want, it shouldn't be—it shouldn't really come as a surprise that this capital riot happened because there's really not that much daylight between saying we'll just disenfranchise voters until we get the outcome we want, and if we don't get the outcome we want, we'll just use force to keep the president in office after they've lost the election. So, I will also say with regards to this Capitol riot, that this should have been about as much of a surprise as Newt Gingrich cheating on his second wife was. You know, politicians acting like they're surprised that this happened and not, you know, acting like they didn't see it coming. They're acting like Newt Gingrich's second wife, you know, being like, you cheated on me too? You know, but in any case, that's why, that's part of the reason why I really do think that either Trump or somebody acting on his behalf told the Capitol Police to stand down and let the rioters in. And there is also evidence, by the way, that's coming out to endorse that. Uh, for example, uh, one piece of evidence, the head of the Capitol Police, who has now lost their job because crap rolls downhill, the head of the Capitol Police has said that they had made a request for the National Guard before this even happened, and their request was denied the FBI and the NYPD, not exactly, uh, Demo- not exactly Democratic Party machines, both basically sent out warnings to the federal government and basically said, you know, something like this is likely to happen. And also, you, 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 the proof is kind of in the pudding. Because I think it's pretty easy to imagine what would have happened if six months ago, when cities were literally burning, if six months ago, a group of predominantly black rioters had attempted to storm the Capitol building. bloodbath all the way from there to the Lincoln Memorial. And people who try to argue that, no, 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 it wouldn't have gone like that, they have to sort of then grapple with the question of, well, why didn't a large group of black rioters this summer try this? Because if it's true that they would have been dealt with just as leniently during the sort of initial storming of the Capitol, then it's not entirely clear why a large group of rioters this past summer didn't attempt to storm the Capitol building. But I think that the reason they didn't attempt to storm the Capitol building is clear. And the reason is that they knew that they would be slaughtered if they did. Uh, And people try to make the analogy of, oh, well, this happened in Seattle. This happened in Portland. But the difference is this stuff didn't happen at the Capitol building. The Capitol building is considered really one of the most important buildings to our national security because it's where Congress meets. And it is effectively controlled by the federal government of which Trump is still the head of until this week. He was certainly the head of at the time of the riot. And so the police reaction and the amount of force that's going to be mobilized is going to be predictably a lot different if you try to storm the Capitol than if you're trying to take over someplace in downtown Seattle. That's the reality. I'm not saying that's good. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying that that is a reality. So trying to bring up what happened in Seattle, what happened in Portland, Oregon, it's an apples to oranges comparison. And I would also say that we are now being subjected to the same cockamamie myth that we heard over the summer, which is that Democrats, including Joe Biden, did not condemn the riots that erupted after the murder of George Floyd. And it doesn't matter how many quotes you come out with of people like Biden, people like Harris condemning the riots in harsh terms, people will still insist, oh, well, they didn't really condemn the riots, though. And it seems to me that a lot of this hinges on this idea that conservatives have basically been trying to promote since the 60s, which is that if you show any sympathy for the anger of rioters, then even if you condemn the riots and advocate for force to put the riots down, then you're not really condemning the riots because you expressed some shred of empathy for what was making these individuals angry enough to riot. Well, conservatives are now going to have to probably change their position on this because Trump has pretty w- has pretty much expressed blatant sympathy for the rioters who tried to storm the Capitol. And the reality is, while Biden showed some sympathy for the rioters uh, who started rioting after the uh, George Floyd murder, if he had spoken about them in the same terms that Trump did in that initial video that I think by now everyone has watched, he would probably not be president-elect right now. I- I'm trying to imagine what the fallout would have been if Biden had done a video telling the rioters this summer how, how much he loved them and how special he thought they were. There's just a complete double standard here. And that's to say nothing, of course, of the motivation between the two riots. Now, again, if anybody wants to go back and search through all of my blog posts, all my tweets, any Facebook posts I ever made, they will not find anything where I ever supported the riots that erupted this summer. In fact, my position was always that it would be reasonable to use a certain amount of force to stop the riots. No, I did not think, and I still don't think, it would have been a good idea for Trump to send in the military and just start killing rioters. But I did feel that tactics such as, you know, rubber bullets, tear gas, riot shields, etc., were a reasonable response to the riots this summer, even though I expressed sympathy, and I still express sympathy, for the anger of the rioters and the reason that they were motivated to riot. Now, the difference here is that the riots this summer were essentially a reaction. It was a deplorable reaction, but nonetheless, they were a reaction to 400 years of societal and state mistreatment of black people. And they were triggered by a murder that was caught on camera. The riot at the Capitol was triggered by an authoritarian losing a presidential election and a bunch of his crazy supporters wanting to keep him in office despite the will of the American people. So however you slice it, this sort of whataboutism about the riots this summer just isn't a good argument for conservatives to be making. And I will also say, it's just kind of worth uh, pointing out here, that it is true that Trump commands a lot of support among a lot of working class and poor whites, particularly in rural areas. But there's a stereotype that's kind of come along now that that's his entire base of support. And some of it does sort of degenerate into sort of classist uh, stereotyping, you know, so you know, people make a joke about, well, you know, the only people who've got Trump signs, you know, or uh, have half their teeth missing, and, and I don't endorse that. And not only does it veer into classism, but it also oversimplifies. So, so far, it's become apparent that a lot of the rioters, probably the majority of the rioters who stormed the Capitol were middle and upper class, you know, people who worked in the business sector, for example. Uh, It was really more if you look at sort of the typical profile of a rioter at the Capitol recently, they seem to be a lot more the O.C. than Hillbilly Elegy in terms of sort of what uh, kind of what their economic background is. And that makes sense for a variety of reasons. Uh, For one thing, most Trump supporters don't live in D.C. It wasn't exactly a city that he did that. Well, I should say most Trump supporters who aren't politicians don't live in D.C. Uh, And so. If you look at the rioters, most of them had to come from some other town. And, you know, that requires money for gas, money for a plane ticket if you're flying all the way from, say, Montana. Um, It requires money for hotels. And it also, I think, requires a a certain expectation that you're well-connected enough that you're not going to get the book thrown at you. Although, as we're seeing, you can only be so well-connected once you ride at the Capitol. Uh, So... I think that sort of that working class stereotype of Trump voters is really not telling the whole entire story here, uh, and I will also say that I am concerned. Although I am cautiously, I'm cautiously optimistic that this isn't going to happen. But I am concerned that in sort of the attempt to uh, penalize the Capitol Police, who clearly, in many cases, although we'll get to uh, an example of, of examples of some who were, but in many cases the Capitol Police were not doing their job during the riot. Uh, and, and the arguably the sergeant at arms was not doing their job. I am concerned that this is going to be kind of a case of crap rolling downhill where, you know, the, the people who if, if capital any capital police officers who basically stood down and let the rioters storm the building or who any people in leadership with the capital police who did not do their did not do their duty in regard to all of this, they should be fired. And there should be there should be the possibility of prosecution on the table. But they are not the most guilty party here, because, as I've said, it is highly unlikely that the Capitol Police handled the situation the way that they did without being ordered to by either Trump or somebody working on his behalf. And so I'm concerned that we're going to get so focused on spearing the big fish that the little ones are going to kind of swim away. And this is particularly concerning to me in light of people like James Comey, who are basically saying that Trump should be in jail, but for the so-called good of the country, he should get pardoned. And of course, you know, it's, it's interesting that Comey seems to uh, have more of an issue with Edward Snowden avoiding prison than he does with Donald Trump. Uh, but in any case, I think that I am cautiously optimistic that they really are going to go after Trump for this, uh, because I do think as the evidence starts coming in, there's probably going to be something that links him to this. And I think that's especially true because as Capitol Police, who uh, in many cases let the riot happen, as those cops start getting interrogated and they start realizing that they're looking at not only losing their jobs, not, not only losing their pensions, but potential, potentially prison time, I think some of them are going to start talking about who it was that ordered them to do this. Uh, and that, of course, brings me to the police officer, Officer uh, Sicknick, who was murdered by Capitol rioters. And what we're finding is that the thin blue line crowd, really, that a lot of them, their concern for police only goes so far. Because a lot of them are sort of downplaying how bad the riot was, even though a cop died. And what that shows you is that really a lot of this, like, support the police no matter what, really was often a smokescreen for authoritarianism rather than a real concern for police officers. And I hope that police officers who support Donald Trump are, are going to realize that Donald Trump does not care about them. Many of the Republican politicians do not care about them. Much of Trump's base does not really care about them that much. Now, that brings me to, an, to another example, uh, in addition to the cop that got murdered, of a police officer during the Capitol riot who did his job properly. So that police officer, the, the example of a police officer that I'm going to give, in, that I'm going to talk about here, is a guy uh, by the name of Officer Daniel Hodge. Now, Daniel Hodge was beaten by rioters. They got a hold of his own baton and started hitting him with it. There's video of blood coming out of his mouth. And Daniel Hodge had this to say, If it wasn't my job, I'd do it for free. I would have done that for free. It was absolutely my pleasure to crush a white nationalist insurrection. I'm glad I was in a position to be able to help. We'll do it as many times as it takes. And this sort of ties in with the fact that while police officers do seem to skew significantly more conservative on race issues on average than the general public, it is not true that the racial attitudes of even specifically white cops... Are monolithic they are not monolithic the data that i have seen generally indicates that about one in four white cops have broadly racial, uh, broadly liberal views on racial issues that doesn't mean that 25 percent of white cops are, are robin d'angelo but it does mean that data would indicate that about one in four white cops are what we would generally consider to be liberal on racial issues and officer hodges seems to be in that category and this is one of the reasons that I, I would never use the phrase a cab, you know, for all cops are bastards. I think if we're going to use a quote like that, I think a better one would, e- would either be uh, MCAB for many cops are bastards or SCAB for some cops are bastards. But with regards to sort of Trump's election conspiracy monitoring, conspiracy theory monitoring, I think one thing that's important to understand is it is important to grasp why these claims about election fraud, which are utterly without evidence, are so dangerous. Because if, let's say, Donald Trump had won re-election again, God forbid, and it turned out that there was conclusive evidence that he had rigged the election, that he had stolen the election, and he was about to take office again and get away with it. If that was true, then I think a riot at the Capitol, or I should say a storming of the Capitol building would be justified under those circumstances, and and essentially what Trump is doing is he's he's been peddling a conspiracy theory that if true would arguably make a riot a, a a revolt at the Capitol you know a storming of the Capitol building justified in order to prevent a president from successfully stealing an election. The reason that the Capitol riot was so bad is partly because there was no stolen election. Biden won fair and square. And as they say, he beat Trump so badly that when Trump walks north, he's looking south. Uh, So you might be surprised, given all that, that I am not in favor of prosecuting Trump specifically for the statements that he made leading up to the riot. Because the bar for the legal bar for inciting violence is and must be sky high. You have to be very, very explicit about advocating very specific acts of violence in specific instances. And I think that Trump's legal team, I mean, they're not exactly the big guns. I mean, I don't think Rudy Giuliani is exactly a Mensa, but at least they have enough intelligence, I think, to sort of tell him, okay, this is what you can say without being in legal trouble for inciting violence. And I'm concerned that if we were to prosecute Trump specifically for his speech that he made prior to the riots, then that would set a very dangerous precedent with regards to sort of prosecuting other people for inciting violence in cases where they were being, where they were using incendiary language but not explicitly advocating for specific acts of violence. And I would sort of like to offer uh, a, a kind of an analogy here. So this is a tweet that I did back on November 26th of last year. Quote, I don't consider this insignificant, but many do. I am appalled by public school kids in many conservative areas being forced to stand for the pledge and the anthem, and I will keep going after the school officials and politicians who bully kids like this with everything I got. Now, to be clear, and I thought this was obvious with the tweet, uh, knowing what I know now, I might have worded it differently, but I felt that it was obvious with that tweet, and I think most people understood, that when I said that I was coming after them with everything I got, I simply meant that I was going to continue speaking out against the censorship of public school students for failing a patriotic litmus test. But if we sort of apply the looser standard of sort of trying to take incendiary but imprecise language and use it as evidence of incitement to rebellion or incitement to violence, then I could potentially be prosecuted for that tweet, and I don't think that would be reasonable. I think that the American right, for its entire existence, has applied the principle of free speech very selectively, wherein they cry censorship when anything that they like or aren't offended by is being censored even by a private company. But then as soon as somebody says something that offends them, then they want the government to censor it. Uh, We see this with Donald Trump complaining about cancel culture while also advocating that people who burn an American flag should be imprisoned or stripped of their citizenship. Uh, And so I think that the left has got to be better than that. The left should be the side, because clearly the right is not going to do this. The left needs to be the side that consistently defends free speech, even when it's free speech that they find abhorrent. Uh, and I, you know, I have taken heat for arguing that hate speech laws should not be in place. I think that it's crazy that we have obscenity laws, but not hate speech laws. It's certainly the fact that we have these crazy obscenity laws on the books certainly undermines the free speech argument for uh, legally allowing hate speech. But I don't think I do not think we should have hate speech laws or obscenity laws, uh, because I, I I am very, very libertarian on issues of free speech, as is the ACLU. Uh, but I th- but I do think that Trump should be prosecuted. Let me explain. First of all, we have him dead to rights on sexual assault. Now, that would not be a federal crime That would be prosecuted at the state or local level. But he has about 20, maybe, maybe even more than that women who have accused him of sexual abuse. and he admitted to it on tape when he was not under under duress. You know, I mean, that access Hollywood tape from a prosecutorial standpoint. It's better than a tape of a police interrogation because with a police interrogation, a lot of times you get browbeat and browbeat and browbeat until you give them the answer that they want. With the Access Hollywood tape, he wasn't under any kind of duress. He was just bragging about sexually assaulting women. Uh, And so I think that's, we we have him dead to rights on sexual assault and people people can tell the jury not to consider that tape if they think it was illegally obtained. But first of all, There's not a juror in the country that has not heard that tape and good luck getting jurors not to consider that when they're deciding whether to convict Trump. Now, even if you don't want to go after him for that, I do think that once if Democrats and if the Biden administration fully pursues this investigation, I think they're going to find that Trump or somebody working on his behalf did tell the Capitol Police to essentially let rioters storm the Capitol, which would be a crime. So I do believe that Trump needs to go to prison, probably for the rest of his life. Um, But I do not think it should be that I do not think he should go to prison for an incendiary speech that he made. That would be a bad move by Democrats. And speaking of free speech, I do hope that uh, the sort of Washington, D.C. city government, as well as the Biden administration, will be careful to continue to uphold the free speech rights of nonviolent pro Trump protesters. I do not think that, for example, shutting down protests at the National Mall is going to be a good idea. Not only is it a free speech violation, a freedom of assembly violation also, but furthermore, rioters aren't going to obey rules like that. So, so it really would only be effective on nonviolent protesters. And to be clear, the stop the steal protesters are reprehensible, but you can be reprehensible. And if you're nonviolent, you still should not be prosecuted over it. That that would be my take. But suffice it to say, this whole idea of you've got to support Biden because he's the president, you've got to stand behind the president, he's your president, whether you voted for him, I don't give a crap about any of that. I I don't care about the respect or the majesty, the the respect for or the majesty of the office of the president. What I care about is this idea that you can somehow just disenfranchise voters until you get the result that you want, or that you can use force to keep a president in office after they have already been voted out, because that is tyranny. But if you're a Trump supporter, fear not, because Trump is finding a sort of an outlet to channel his anger without much consequences for himself. And that outlet seems to be massively speeding up federal executions. And when I read that Trump was doing this, I just said to myself, how can this be? Because for two years, we have had people from Trump himself to Van Jones, basically saying or implying that Trump was better than Biden on criminal justice reform. And what this required people to do was to cherry pick very specific cases of criminal justice reform issues where Trump was not awful, you know, not awful, and ignore all the many areas of criminal justice and policing where Trump was abysmal and compare those to Biden's worst positions from 25 to 30 years ago. That's what you had to do to claim that Trump was better than Biden on criminal justice reform. But the reason I said, how can this be, is that if Trump, as people have been saying for two years, really is better than Biden on criminal justice reform, then why isn't he trying to commute those sentences before he leaves office? You know, why is he instead trying to kill these people quickly before Biden comes in and possibly decides to spare their lives. Uh, So uh, that really should put the Trump is better on criminal justice reform myth to bed permanently. And now enjoy the uh, rest of the podcast, your regularly scheduled programming. Good evening. Today, we are going to be doing the first sort of episode of what you might call the reboot of the Minority of One podcast. Uh, So the title of today's episode will be called Election Reflection. So as the title would indicate, the uh, main focus of this podcast episode is going to be about sort of my thoughts on the 2020 presidential election. The following episode, uh, which will, uh, which will uh, be produced and aired after the runoff results in Georgia, where I live, uh, is going to cover the con- uh, basically congressional election results. But that is, um, th- that's going to be the following episode. Uh, this is going to be focusing on the presidential election, uh, the good, the bad, and the statistically hilarious. So, before we get into that, though, I want to talk about a, a couple of other kind of um, current political issues. So, the first thing that I want to discuss is the pardon, the the issue of pardoning Edward Snowden. Now, I um. Just uh, most of you probably know who Edward Snowden is. But just to sort of recap, Edward Snowden is the guy, a uh, former government employee, who leaked the information that exposed the NSA, the National Security Agency's metadata program, uh, also known as PRISM. Now, so basically, since uh, the leaks happened, Uh, Seven and a half years ago in the summer of 2013, there has been a sort of ongoing debate as to whether or not Edward Snowden should be pardoned. Uh, You have sort of one side who insists that he's a traitor and deserves anything he gets. Uh, You have another side who would argue that Snowden deserves a pardon because he exposed civil liberties violations and has been sort of unfairly targeted by the government for that. There's a third camp, and this is sort of the position that Bernie Sanders has articulated, which which sort of takes the position that Snowden shouldn't be pardoned, but that he should get sort of a reduced penalty due to sort of the public service that he did in alerting the public about the NSA's spying program. So I want to, again, just to sort of reiterate what the program consisted of. The program consisted of the NSA essentially taking every American's phone records and putting them on a database. Uh, so that was um, what Snowden exposed with his illegal hack. So in 2016, the ACLU called on the United or on the president of the United States at the time, Barack Obama, to pardon Snowden for his actions. Um, In the 2016 presidential election, both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump took a pretty hard line against Snowden. Uh, Hillary Clinton uh, really showed no sympathy for what Snowden had done, and she demanded that he be be forced to, quote-unquote, face the music. Now, Donald Trump took a a different uh, view. Donald Trump's view was that Snowden should be brought back, but that he should be brought back to be executed. Something that Hillary Clinton was not advocating for. So, in the and there was a petition that was put out in 2016, but uh, that was signed by a number of celebrities calling on uh, the president to pardon Snowden. And you know it's funny because you hear people. Um, say, and I believe there's been a petition signed since then, but you, you hear people say, and we'll get into why that doesn't even, this doesn't even make any sense to claim, but you hear people say that it's really just Trump supporters who want Snowden to be pardoned. And it's funny because if you look at some of the people uh, who have petitioned for him to be pardoned, uh, that would include the uh, late author Ursula Le Guin, who is a far-left anarchist. Uh, it would also include Danny Glover, Uh, who I don't think anyone believes supports Trump, he's a very outspoken, uh, very liberal or a leftist celebrity. Uh, They've called for pardoning Snowden. I I don't think anyone would suggest that the ACLU is a primarily pro-Trump group, and they have uh, been advocating that Snowden be pardoned for years. Now, uh, what we're seeing is sort of a renewed question of whether Snowden should be pardoned, and whether or not Trump is likely to pardon him. So, over the summer, Trump said that he was seriously looking into a pardon of Snowden, and I did not buy it. And the reason I didn't buy it was uh, not only because Trump had said in 2016 that he wanted Snowden executed. That wasn't the only re- that wasn't the only reason. The uh, another big reason that I did not believe that Trump was going to pardon Snowden and still do not think that he will pardon Snowden before he leaves office is the fact that As president, Donald Trump has generally been pretty supportive of the surveillance state. In other words, of giving groups like the NSA and the FBI very kind of or maybe not the FBI because he thinks the FBI is against him, but giving groups like the like the NSA very broad authority to spy on Americans without due process, uh, without, you know, the sort of standard get a get a uh, very specific warrant before you search somebody. You know, Trump has not been really sympathetic to that idea of get a warrant. Uh, so, in 20, early 2018, Donald Trump signed a surveillance state bill, the FISA Amendments Reauthorization Act of 2017, uh, FISA being the Foreign Intelligence uh, Act. So in 2018, Trump signed the reauthorization bill, and the ACLU opposed his, desi- his decision to sign this bill. Um, many Democrats voted for it, but Democrats voted for it at a significantly lower rate than Republicans did. Uh, the majority of the Senate opposition was from Democrats. In the House, uh, about two, almost two-thirds of Democrats voted against the bill. The ACLU opposed it, Trump signed it. Now I want to read you uh, a press release that the ACLU put out on January 11, 2018, about this bill. Quote, the House voted today to pass an amended version uh, of a surveillance bill that would extend Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Act, FISA. The FISA Amendments Reauthorization Act of 2017, or S-139, would risk codifying illegal surveillance practices into law. Section 702 is used to spy on the emails, text messages, and other electronic communications of Americans and foreigners without a warrant. An amendment sponsored by Representatives Amash, Republican Michigan, and Lofgren, D. California, to reform Section 702, which was supported by the American Civil Liberties Union, failed. Nima Singh Guliani, policy counsel with the ACLU, had the following reaction. The House voted today to give President Trump and his administration more spying powers. The government will use this bill to continue warrantless intrusions into Americans' private emails, text messages, and other communications. No president should have this power, yet members of Congress just voted to hand it to an administration that has labeled individuals as threats based merely on their religion, nationality, or viewpoints. The Senate should reject this bill and rein in government surveillance powers to bring Section 702 in line with the Constitution. So, again, this this was a generally conservative surveillance state bill, a pro-government surveillance bill that was opposed by the ACLU, uh, opposed by most of the people who are very libertarian on surveillance in Congress, which is primarily Democrats, but also a few Republicans. It was opposed by most of those. And Trump signed it. Uh, Kamala Harris voted uh, against it. So on this issue of surveillance, Harris is certainly more libertarian than Trump is. So Trump signed this bill in 2019 he asked Congress to reauthorize the uh, portion of the the Patriot Act that had authorized the mass collection of every American's phone records, uh, which was, again, that was what Snowden exposed. The NSA essentially treated everyone as a suspect and assumed that they were uh, guilty until proven innocent by collecting their records. So Donald Trump asked Congress to reauthorize this program. And he was said, and he said, "Oh, don't worry, we're not using it, but uh, just in case we've got to, uh, can you give us authority to do it? We promise we won't abuse it." You know, and um, unfortunately, I'm sure a lot of people bought that. But Trump has never been anti-surveillance state. He's never been a libertarian or a civil libertarian on surveillance state issues. Um, the one of the very few stances that he's taken that could possibly possibly be construed this way is when he was threatening to uh, n- not sign the Patriot Act reauthorization unless changes were made. And you think back to what I just said about him asking Congress to reauthorize the... the uh, portion of it that allowed the NSA to mass collect phone records. And you think, well, wait, why would Trump be threatening to veto the Patriot Act unless changes were made? And the reason that he was threatening to veto the reauthorization was very specifically that he was concerned that parts of it had been used uh, to allow the FBI to spy on his campaign. So he was all in favor of having giving the NSA the power to just have access to everyone's phone records. But when he thought there might be sort of a threat to uh, his well-being, or his sort of privacy, uh, then all of a sudden he started uh, at least using the kind of rhetoric that would allow people to label him as a much more anti-surveillance state than he actually is. In fact, he's pro-surveillance state. So I do not believe that Trump is going to pardon Snowden. I would like to see him pardon Snowden. and And I'd be happy to explain why I would like to see him pardon Snowden. So in my opinion, what the government was doing by... And, and what Trump wants the government to still be allowed to do, uh, of collecting everyone's phone records, that was a gross civil liberties violation. It is a violation of people's right to privacy to have their, uh, essentially, phone records or other personal information collected in this way without a warrant, collected at all without a warrant. Um, and so I think another sort of aspect of that, uh, which has to be considered is the argument of, well, the NSA doesn't actually look at this kind of stuff unless they have reasonable suspicion that you committed a crime. They just have it on record, but they won't look at your phone records unless they think you're committing some sort of crime or engage in some act of terrorism. And it's funny because if we actually applied this consistently, that would mean that Americans would have to be perfectly fine with the government just having a camera in everyone's home 24-7 as long as the government just promised, oh, we'll only look at the footage if we suspect you of something, otherwise we won't look at it. I think most Americans would argue that that's still a privacy violation. That's how I feel about the uh, NSA's spying. And that is why I still maintain that the Patriot Act either needs to be massively overhauled or it needs to be repealed. Um, and it's interesting also to me because... With, uh, re- with regard to all of this, it-, it is odd to me when people make the argument that, well, regardless of whether what Snowden did was justified, he has an obligation, a sacred obligation, to accept the punishment for what he did. And that's sort of the old argument of, well, you can break the law if you feel that you must, if, you're, if, you're, if the law is bad and your conscience demands it, but then you have to accept the punishment. Now, that's never really made sense to me because it's not entirely clear. If the government doesn't have a right to force you to follow a bad law, then it's not entirely clear why, consistent uh, from a consistency standpoint, the government would then have the authority to punish you for breaking the law, and why it's acceptable in certain situations to break the law, but not acceptable to avoid the punishment for it. And, and I would also argue, and so I would argue really that, Nobody has an obligation to follow a repressive law, and nobody has an obligation to accept a punishment for breaking the the repressive law. And it's it's it also to give you sort of another idea about why this doesn't really hold up consistently is that people will, you know, sort of. uh, When they're talking about when they're comparing it to Snowden, uh, they'll uh, they'll bring when they're sort of looking for a comparison to Snowden they'll bring up the example of people like Martin Luther King Jr., uh, who accepted their punishment for breaking bad laws. But you can also find examples of cases where most not right-wingers, at least, would agree that accepting the punishment was uh, not an obligation. So, for example, what if we were to apply the idea of sort of always being obligated to accept the punishment for breaking a bad law, what if we applied that to uh, runaway slaves or Jews who hid during the Holocaust? Does that mean that if they were caught, that they then couldn't try to escape again, and they had to just accept the punishment for breaking repressive laws? Now, under normal circumstances, I would, I would be hesitant to bring these examples up and compare them with Snowden, but I think that the reason that I'm bringing these up is that not that, what Snow- not that what the NSA was doing is equivalent to what slaveholders were doing or what the Nazis were doing. I'm not, saying, I'm not saying that it's in any way equivalent to that. What I'm just bringing this up to sort of illustrate is that once you establish the principle that you have to just accept your punishment if you break a bad law, then taken to its logical conclusion, that's going to require people to just sort of submit to things that most of us would argue really are beyond the pale of, of, of what anybody should be expected to submit to. Um, I think that it's also worth noting, because the example of Martin Luther King Jr. gets brought up, um, and the thing about it with King, it is true that King argued that if you broke all, he, he said in the letter from Birmingham jail that if you break a, a bad law, you still need to be willing to accept the punishment for that. But Howard Zinn, uh, the deceased uh, radical left historian, author of People's History of the United States, made the argument that if you look at King's actions rather than his words, it's not at all clear that he believed that. So King was certainly willing and eager to stay in jail in many cases to sort of prove a point about the injustices that he was trying to correct. But there was a point at which he was sentenced to several months and King did not want to stay in jail for several months. And basically, a member of JFK called, on the advice of some of the members of his team, called Martin Luther King's wife, Coretta Scott King, and sort of expressed sympathy for what was happening to her husband. And then JFK's team pulled strings to get King out of jail. Now, if King had truly believed that you're obligated to just accept the punishment for breaking a bad law then he would have said, no, 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 I have an obligation to stay in jail. King didn't do that. He, uh, he did not look the gift horse in the mouth. He got out of jail when the, Ken- when the Kennedy team pulled some strings. So, and, I, and I think that he, King did the right thing there because if the government does not have the right to force oppressive laws on us, then we, do not have the, then we do not have the obligation to uh, go along with our punishment for breaking those laws. That's my take. Uh, so I would argue that Snowden should be pardoned. Now, there's another point that I, uh, that I want to kind of bring up here. The argument is, well, Snowden went to Russia. You know, he went to this, this country that is indeed run by a, a horrible, basically, autocrat, and which is an enemy of the United States. Uh, Snowden did flee there and he did sort of throw in to an extent with Vladimir Putin although he did not throw in as much as people think and i'll get into that in a moment but the sort of issue that i have with that argument and and i said so i i had, i wrote an, a blog post back in 2015 arguing that snowden deserved to be pardoned but during that blog post i did sort of take a little bit of a dig at the fact that he had fled to russia now I will honestly, I, I would honestly like to apologize uh, if Snowden is listening, and I, uh, I doubt you are, but if you are listening, I'm sorry that I took that dig at you for fleeing to Russia, because what I didn't understand at the time was that the number of countries that Snowden would have likely been able to uh, sort of get asylum in were rather limited by the fact that it would have been very hard to get asylum in any U.S.-allied countries. Uh, the But one of the things I did point out at the time was that the United States was really not in a position to lecture anybody about their choice of allies. Because, let's remember, the United States is closely allied with Saudi Arabia. The United States has worked with Putin. Uh, so it's not entirely clear why it's okay for the United States government to just sort of pick whatever vile, horrible allies it wants, but when a, an ordinary civilian does it, then that should be used against them. It's not entirely clear why this double standard is reasonable. Uh, so, one of the sort of uh, other... One of the other things I sort of want to say to that, and this was the moment where I really realized, wow, that was a really unfair comment that I made about Snowden. Uh, and the moment that I realized, really, it sunk in, was when Snowden went on social media, and accuse Vladimir Putin of essentially stealing his latest presidential election. And you have to think about, Putin basically holds Snowden's life in the palm of his hand. If if Putin decides that he wants to hand Snowden over to Trump, Snowden is screwed. If Putin decides that he wants to have Snowden killed, Snowden is screwed. So the fact that Snowden was willing to go on social media and rightfully call out Putin... For stealing the election and being a tyrant, really, I think ought to really kind of silence the well, he well he went to Russia argument. Um, and the sort of final argument I want to I, I want to address is the argument goes that Snowden's leaks also put a lot of people working in the NSA at risk; that it made the country as a whole less safe because he was leaking classified information. Now. I'm not going to go through and say that every single bit of information that Snowden leaked should have been leaked. Uh, I would have to do a deep dive into everything that came out. But I will say that you have to look at whose fault is it that this happened. I would argue it's primarily the federal government's fault for allowing this program. Uh, and so it's funny because this seems like kind of common sense to me, but the best way not to have someone leak stuff about all of the privacy rights that you're violating is to not violate people's privacy rights. That, you know, it's like, this is kind of an equivalent to a situation where a bunch, like, let's say hypothetically that a guy is cheating on his wife and somebody decides to hack his phone and leak, leak the information about him cheating on his wife. You can You can certainly argue that maybe the hacker shouldn't have done that, but imagine if you had the husband telling the wife, no, 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 you shouldn't be angry that I'm cheating on you. You should be angry at the guy that hacked my phone that had both of our data on that. At a, you you would you would hope that the wife in that situation would be like, um, aren't you kind of distracting from the bigger issue about the fact that you were lying to me, cheating on me, etc. Um, it, like it, it seems like the United States government is trying to act like the husband and kind of going look over there to try to get get people angry at Snowden instead of being angry at them. Um, but I w- I will say that I hope Trump will pardon Snowden. I hope that Biden will pardon Snowden. I don't think either of them are going to do it. Uh, You know, I love Obama and Biden, but they uh, have generally been very supportive of the surveillance state. Uh, The Snowden leaks happened under the Obama administration. Uh, But I, I could see a slight possibility that if Harris becomes president eventually, that she would pardon him because she, as as I discussed earlier she did vote against the FISA Amendments Act of 2017. And so she is better than uh, Obama, Trump or Biden on this issue. But, you know, I'm I'm happy to say uh, I have opposed the surveillance state under Bush. I oppose it under Obama. I oppose it under Trump. And I look forward to opposing it under Joe Biden. So um, with all of that in mind, I want to sort of turn to the next thing. Uh, This involves uh, a soon-to-be-lame-duck Hawaii representative, Tulsi Gabbard. So, Tulsi Gabbard had, uh, shall we say, sort of a sordid track record with issues of LGBT rights when she was in her 20s. Uh, Because in the early 2000s, as a young woman, she was involved in Hawaii state politics, and she spoke out very strongly against gay marriage. Now, it's true that... Most Democratic politicians at that time opposed gay marriage, but Gabbard used the kind of uh you might call it kind of gutter rhetoric about gay people that even at the time was really more sort of associated with the Christian right. You know t- types of statements that uh, Democrats shouldn't use, or, or that sorry, obviously nobody should nobody should use it. But st- kind of statements that Democrats typically wouldn't have used. Um, So, for example, young Tulsi was talking about, quote-unquote, homosexual extremists. Now, that is not the kind of rhetoric that even somebody like a Hillary Clinton or a Joe Biden would have said at the time, even though they were both opposed to gay marriage. Uh, So, Tulsi Gabbard got elected to Congress in 2012. She stated that her views had significantly evolved on LGBT rights, and that at that point she was supportive of same-sex marriage. And as a representative, she compiled a very liberal voting record, on the LGBT rights issues. So at the beginning of 2019, Tulsi Gabbard got sort of bent out of shape because some of the uh, Senate Democrats, such as uh, Hawaii's junior Senator Maisie Hirano, were grilling a Trump nominee about his membership in the Knights of Columbus. And now the Knights of Columbus is a Catholic-affiliated group. It is not a group that all Catholics are members of, most Catholics are not, and it is a group that engages in political lobbying. So it's not just... Uh, a religious group. Um, and it is, again, not the, it is not the Catholic Church. It is linked to the it is affiliated with the Catholic Church, but it is not the same as it's not a situation where all Catholics just automatically join the Knights of Columbus. Now, one of the things that the Knights of Columbus has lobbied on is in opposition to same sex marriage, trying to keep it from getting legalized. So. Tulsi Gabbard was just so mad that her fellow members of Congress would dare to question somebody about their membership in a group that has engaged in anti-gay political lobbying. And she was arguing that it was anti-Catholic bigotry. Uh, Now, or or I don't know if she said bigotry, but she insisted it was anti-Catholic. Now, in addition to the problems that I mentioned here a moment ago about why I did not find her argument convincing, uh, I do also want to kind of point out here that... If we actually applied this idea that being involved with a group that is religiously affiliated automatically means that you cannot be questioned about your involvement in the group or it becomes a religious freedom violation, everyone would shudder if we took that to its logical conclusion. So, obviously, just here's the purposes of analogy. Obviously, you cannot try to block somebody's judicial nomination on account of them being Muslim. That would be religious discrimination would anybody seriously argue that questioning a nominee about their support for isis is discrimination against muslims because that is the argument in essence that tulsi gabbard was making is that if a group is religiously affiliated you by definition can't ask somebody about their membership in it without it being religious discrimination i'd be curious to know though if gabbard would sort of uh apply that logic to a muslim judicial nominee who was affiliated or who was a supporter of ISIS. Um, You know, let's say, you know, I understand that ISIS, you know, that being a member of ISIS would mean you'd engage in terrorist activity, but let's say that they quote unquote only had publicly voiced their support for the group, but weren't directly involved with it. Would that mean according to Gabbard that it was a religious freedom violation to ask them about that? And it's worth noting that Tulsi Gabbard, um, is friendly with the Indian head of state uh, of India, Narendra Modi, who is very anti-Muslim, and also was one of a minority of Democrats to uh, vote for very tight restrictions on Syrian refugees, uh, restrictions which were opposed by the Obama administration. So let's just say I don't expect Tulsi Gabbard to be defending Muslims anytime soon. Um, But Tulsi Gabbard made this argument. Now, at the time, I was I was saying to people, look, This indicates that Tulsi Gabbard hasn't fully shifted on LGBT rights since she was a young woman. And the reason I say that is that when a person who has a a, a past of being anti-gay tries to show that they've changed, they usually don't do it by defending an anti-gay group because they understand that their credibility in this area is severely compromised due to things that they've said in the past. Uh, And they realize that reasonable people will necessarily call their motives into question. And they realize that it's going to come off like somebody who fairly recently embraced gay rights is telling longtime advocates and allies how to go about sort of what the appropriate methods are for advocating for LGBT rights. It's inevitably going to leave a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths and people who have uh, who have changed usually understand that and usually would stay out of these types of issues if they really feel that it's not appropriate to be asking somebody about their Knights of Columbus membership. So uh, when I would point this out, and and one of the analogies I used, because we saw this, we actually saw this with uh, Senator Jesse Helms from North Carolina many years ago. If you had been a segregationist and you acted like you weren't one anymore. Now Helms never really, well, yeah, he denied that he had been a segregationist, but if you're trying to show that you're not that guy anymore. You wouldn't necessarily want to make a big stink about how you oppose affirmative action. You may, you might try to tell people that your motives were just solely non-discriminatory and you just really believed that people should be hired on their merit, not based on their race. But the fact that you were a segregationist would inevitably call your motivations on that, your stated motivations, into question. Helms did not understand this uh, when he made affirmative action a, a big issue in one of his re-election campaigns. Uh, years after being an open segregationist. Helms did not understand that. Gabbard does not seem to understand that. Or at least I didn't think she understood that. But it seems to me that she actually understood it pretty well. Because what it appears like now is that Gabbard is essentially trying, uh, as she leaves Congress, to sort of cozy back up with sort of elements of the Christian right. And the reason that I say that is, first of all, she was one of the main co-sponsors of a of a bill. She is one of the main co-sponsors, as of this month, of a bill which would ban trans women from participating in women's sports. Now, this is an issue where I think there's some element of legitimate ignorance, where some people who are, gener- who are generally supportive of trans rights don't like the idea of trans women in sports. But the fact that it is ignorant uh, does not mean... That there is any validity to it. It is just that. It's ignorant, and I'm going to explain why. So, first of all, it is generally accepted that some people, due to uh, reasons that include genetics, have an athletic leg up over some of their competitors, and this applies to people uh, who were born uh, uh, of the same biological sex. It applies, in some cases, to trans athletes, uh, not in all cases, but the thing about it is, it's just odd that we accept this—that uh, we accept this idea generally that some people might have a genetic leg up in sports, but that suddenly, when it's trans women involved, people want to make sure that nobody has any kind of even a genetic advantage. And it's kind of rich to see conservatives joining in on this because when you try to tell a conservative, look, because the average black person uh, is born into a family with less wealth than the average white person, for reasons that are uh, very much overwhelmingly rooted in the history of slavery and segregation in this country, when you try to point this out to conservatives and you try to explain that the average black kid is at a disadvantage because of this, then the conservative argument is, well, they'll just have to work harder. Suck it up, work harder, be grateful you're American. That's kind of the conservative line when you bring this up. But then these same people say that, well, even if a trans woman might not always beat a cis woman in sports, it's unfair that the trans woman has an advantage. So this is like the one area where conservatives really, really care about everybody having equal opportunity. But again, when it comes to sports, uh, we do not have separate sports leagues for people of larger bone structure. Um, We do not have separate sports leagues based upon testosterone level. So it seems to me that it's just odd that we are very, very fixated on a perceived unfair advantage when it involves a trans woman, but we accept in a myriad of other cases that uh, somebody, some athletes are going to have sort of a built-in advantage over other athletes. Now, this sort of brings us to a separate question about does a, does a trans woman, as a result of the sex that she was born with, have an advantage in competitive sports that is simply too much for any cis woman to overcome, no matter how athletic that cis woman is. And we know that the answer to this is no. And one of the reasons that we know that this is not correct is actually one of the key cases that opponents of trans women in sports have brought up before. Now, this woman's name is Fallon Fox. Uh, Fallon Fox Ah, uh, she is retired now, but she was a mixed martial arts fighter. And she is transgender. Ah, uh, she was born with a biological uh, birth sex of male. She realized that she was a woman, and she it, it, and she competed in mixed martial arts against other women. Now, she was a subject of a massive amount of controversy,, uh, with many people such as Joe Rogan insisting that she had an unfair advantage. Due to her due to uh, her biological sex at birth. Now remember, this is not just some random trans athlete that that I uh, cherry picked. This is one of the key trans athletes that opponents of trans women in women's sports have brought up to try to support their case. So let's look at what Fallon Fox's MMA record actually was. So there was a there was a heavy focus on one fight where she played she fought according to the rules of the contest but she did seriously injure another opponent Uh, which i don't want to make light of that but just as a side note mma is a very dangerous sport and injuries uh sometimes severe ones do happen Uh, and again it seems like people disproportionately care about it when one of the athletes is trans but there was significant attention that was given to uh injuries that one of her opponents suffered in a match with her so you would think, though, that the way that people were talking about Fallon Fox, that she had just steamrolled through all of her competition, and she was undefeated, and she was the, lo- the uh, longest reigning uh, MMA champion in her division. And that's not quite the case. So she lost, uh, very decisively, to a woman named Ashley Evans-Smith, uh, who is cisgender. And lest anyone think that Ashley Evans-Smith was some sort of juggernaut that was just the one fighter that was able to beat the odds. She has a record of six to five uh, in terms of six wins and five losses. And Ashley Evans-Smith has never held any kind of professional MMA title in her division. Neither did Fox. So essentially, Fox was sort of what you might call an upper mid-level fighter who, in one of her fights, severely injured uh, another mid-level fighter, but then in another fight was decisively beaten by somebody who also was more of sort of an upper-mid-level fighter. So this really, as much as Fallon Fox became sort of the poster child for opposition to trans women in sports, it's interesting to look at her case and show that it actually debunks the idea that trans women have this kind of massive competitive advantage that simply cannot be overcome. Now, lest anybody think that this wasn't Tulsi Gabbard just sort of reverting back to the person she's been since her 20s. Lest anybody question that, she retweeted Franklin Graham. So Franklin Graham praised her for a couple pieces of legislation that she'd introduced, including the one I just mentioned. And instead of just letting the retweet go, instead of just letting the tweet go, she retweeted him thanked him and wished him happy holidays now franklin graham of course does not just have an issue with trans women in sports he is very anti-trans generally and he is very anti-gay generally and i hope that the minority of gay people uh, who have defended tulsi gabbard and who perhaps think that if they just read trans people out of the movement to make it lgb that uh everything's going to be better for those in that group who have defended tulsi gabbard They probably need to reflect on why she is retweeting Franklin Graham. And I do want to make clear here, most gay people are very supportive of trans rights, but there is a a minority of them and a minority of feminists who think that if they sort of read trans people out of their movement, that everything's going to be better. But what they unfortunately tend to learn, or, or sorry, I should say that they should learn and unfortunately don't, is that the majority of people who are anti-trans are also anti-gay. And when you ally with and defend people who are anti-trans, they're very likely to throw you under the bus because they don't like anybody under the LGBT umbrella. Um, so, and it's unfortunate, really, that Tulsi Gabbard has been one of the main uh, co-sponsors of legislation to pardon Snowden because, really, the pardoning of Snowden is a very worthy cause that deserves better co-sponsors than Tulsi Gabbard. And to be frank, uh, Jesse Helms, like Tulsi Gabbard, knew exactly what he was doing. Jesse Helms was a bigot as a kid. Uh, He was a bigot as a young man, middle-aged man, old man. He was a bigot until he died. Now, the thing with Jesse Helms, though, is that Jesse Helms, like Tulsi Gabbard, figured out exactly sort of what the maximum that he could get away with in terms of vitriol toward black people as a very prominent Republican senator from North Carolina. And then he also realized, okay, there are groups like gay people, that I can say the things about them, this is Jesse Helms's mindset, that I can't say about black people. So Jesse Helms really tried to kind of play coy about, well, I certainly had no racist intent when I said this, and my background certainly isn't relevant here, you know, and um, uh, uh, when he wasn't trying to uh, whitewash his background, and that's really what you see with Tulsi Gabbard. And I'm just going to throw this out there. During the Democratic Party presidential primaries in 2020, I said that the one Democratic candidate that I would not vote for if they were the nominee was Mike Bloomberg, because I felt that some of his statements crossed the line to the point at which... that. That if Bloomberg was the nominee and if Democrats voted for him, then it would essentially be saying that denigrating black people, denigrating trans people is somehow acceptable as long as you're a Democrat. Uh, In 2016, the one Democratic Party uh, primary candidate that I said I would not vote for if they were nominated was Jim Webb. Um, But the thing about Gabbard at the time, I don't think that I had sort of an appreciation of an appreciation for just how sordid and disreputable Gabbard was. And so based on sort of what I know, knowing what I know now, I'm just going to throw this out there. And If anybody is offended by it, they're, they're welcome to stop listening to the podcast or skip over to the next part. But if Gabbard is nominated, or not nominated again, obviously, but if Gabbard runs again and somehow manages to pull off a nomination for president in the Democratic Party presidential primary... I will not vote for her under any circumstances, and that includes if she is running against Trump. If it is, if it comes down to Tulsi Gabbard versus Trump, I'm voting third party uh, in 2024. Previously, I would have said I would have held my nose and voted for Gabbard, but she has crossed the line, and I will not vote for her under any circumstances. I would also like to read something from on the issue that uh, from an article that was posted on ontheissues.org that uh, relates to Tulsi Gabbard's gay rights record or anti-gay rights record since taking office. And this was something that I think I was only vaguely aware of during the primary, but I want to uh, read this to you guys. So, in 2013, the caucus, meaning the Hawaii Democratic Party LGBT caucus, asked Gabbard to send someone to testify at the legislative special session on same-sex marriage, meaning the uh, session about whether to legalize gay marriage, only to be told that Gabbard, quote, doesn't get involved in state politics, end quote. Gabbard's Hawaiian colleagues in Congress all sent a representative to testify in support. So that is Tulsi Gabbard. She's the same person that she's always been. Uh, I tried to sound the alarm about her weaknesses on LGBT rights during the primary. Um, She certainly didn't do well in the primary, but I was also uh, insulted and ridiculed for being so unfair to poor sweet Tulsi. I hope that everybody that defended her and that insulted the people that were criticizing her on social media will apologize to both their lgbt friends and to the lgbt allies that they defamed in their attempt to defend somebody who was not worth defending so this takes us to the uh sort of main event which is the 2020 presidential election so one of the things that uh with the 2020 election that I am sort of proud of is that I was never convinced pre-pandemic that Trump had this election in the bag. I was also not convinced that Democrats had the election in the bag. I believed that it could very easily go either way. I believed that Trump being pretty consistently underwater with approval ratings was not the sort of uh, best sign if you were a Trump supporter, which I am, of course, not, that he was going to win. Uh, because most presidents who have won reelection have tended to enjoy higher approval ratings than Trump did. Uh, I was also, I also felt, on the other hand, that Democrats had a pension for screwing up elections, and I could easily see that happening. Uh, I was not at all clear on which Democratic Party candidate would be the most electable. So I simply supported the candidates in the primary that I felt, would basically do the best job as president if they were elected. So I originally supported Cory Booker. Uh, then when Cory Booker pulled out, I uh, was very conflicted between Bernie and Warren, but I gave each of them a campaign contribution and was leaning toward voting for Warren. Warren dropped out, so I voted for Bernie in the uh, 2020 Georgia primary. And the only reason I got to vote for him was was that uh, I voted early. So... The thing for me, though, was that I also felt that another key reason, besides Trump's sort of underwater approval rating, that, say, a year ago that people were prematurely saying that Trump had it in the bag, was really that we don't know, uh, really, anytime you're looking at an election a year from now, we really don't know what things are going to be like in a year. And, you know, I, I I would have thought that something like just a straight-up recession was more likely to occur uh, than a pandemic, obviously. I don't think it, many people saw that coming, but I felt that the country could look very different in November 2020 than it did in, say, uh, December of 2019 or uh, January or February of 2020. And so... I thought it was really a 50 50 shot. And of course, I also didn't know who the nominee was going to be and which nominee would be the most electable. Uh, now, when the pandemic started, I did believe that it was going to damage Trump's re election chances. Now, I did not see the pandemic lasting and getting worse into November. Uh, I think everyone thought it was going to be a little bit quicker, um, or not everyone, but a lot of people did. Um, and so, But I did think it was going to damage Trump's re election chances. Now, when the, when the riots started, I believed that uh, that was going to probably damage Trump's re-election chances further, and I think a lot of people thought that the opposite was going to occur, and the argument seemed to be that candidates like Ronald Reagan, when he was running for governor of California in uh, 1966 and Richard Nixon when he was running for president in 1968. These guys were able to sort of use riots and sort of stoke the white backlash from those riots to defeat more liberal Democrats. Um, And so the argument was that Trump was going to be doing something similar to that. Now, I and a number of other people pointed out that one of the sort of problems with Trump following the sort of Reagan in 66 and Nixon in 68 playbook is that... Nixon and Reagan were not in office at at that point. Uh, Nixon, actually, interesting fact, Nixon is the only non-incumbent vice president to win a presidential election, meaning the only vice president who wasn't currently serving as vice president, except Joe Biden. So that's a weird, and it's funny, of course, what makes it even funnier is that Joe Biden first was elected to office during Nixon's presidency. It's a very weird sort of twist of fate. Um, but Reagan, of course, was a, a cinema actor, uh, so he, so they weren't the incumbent. That's sort of the point here. And so Reagan and Nixon did engage in a lot of thinly-veiled racist appeals, but they could at least convince people, uh, convince a lot of people these riots are happening because this other guy's in office. Put me in office, and I'll stop the riots. But Trump was in office when the riots were happening. And it's funny because if you go back to 2015, the moment where it really just clicked in my head of, okay, this guy Trump is flat-out bigoted toward black people. He's not unconsciously prejudiced. He's not tone-deaf. He's a flat-out bigot. The moment that really confirmed that for me was a tweet that he did in 2015 during the Baltimore riots. So Donald Trump tweeted, quote, our great African American president hasn't exactly had a positive impact on the thugs who are so happily and openly destroying Baltimore. Now, I think that some people, because that tweet did not get as much attention as it should have, and I think that I think some people looking at it got kind of hung up in the sort of uh, rather sort of painful debate as to whether or not the term "thug" is inherently racist. And so you had people on one side arguing, you know, this is a code word that people use because they can't use racial slurs. Then you had people on the other side arguing, no, you know, the the term thug has been used for people of many different races and many different eras. But what I think both sides missed here is if you take away that kind of debate over terminology, what Trump was essentially saying is that Obama was to blame for the Baltimore riots because he was black and the rioters were black and also in Trump's mind because Obama was the president. Uh, so of course, the the fact that he blamed Obama partly because of his race is why that tweet confirmed for me that Trump was a bigot. But it's funny looking back at it now, because there's also the argument that Trump sort of used, used to try to sort of sugarcoat the racism a little bit, where Trump was trying to say that it is the president's fault if riots take place under their watch. Well, Trump has managed to have far more riots in far more cities than ever took place on anywhere near this kind of scale in the Obama era. So by Trump's own logic, the riots were his fault. Now, now, well, not quite by Trump's own logic, because Trump, if you look at the tweet, Trump said that it's partly Obama's fault because he and the rioters are the same race. So in in that sense, uh, Trump could say that he wasn't to blame for the riots, except maybe in Portland. But in terms of the argument that the president is responsible for the riots that take place on their watch, Trump is essentially condemned by his own standard. Uh, And as we'll talk about, the data seems to suggest that in many areas that were hit hard by riots, possibly harder than most parts of the country, that Trump actually did worse in many of these places than he did last time. So I think most of us who uh, supported, well, basically, I'll put it this way. If you supported Biden, Tuesday was a rough night, uh, election day Tuesday. If you supported Trump, Tuesday was a really fun night until around midnight. If you were a Trump supporter and you went to bed, say, around 1030, then Tuesday was a pretty good night. Uh, What followed after it was not good for you if you were a Trump supporter. So I was very nervous. Uh, I was particularly panicked when I started seeing how Biden was doing pretty badly in Florida. Uh, because that that was one of the states that I had actually predicted that Trump was going to win Florida again. But a lot of people were predicting that Biden was going to take that state. But when you see Biden seemingly doing even worse than Clinton did in Florida, at least in um Miami-Dade County, I'd have to look at the uh, I'd have to look at who did worse in which state as a whole, but but certainly in Miami-Dade County, Biden did worse, you see that, and you start to wonder, holy crap, is he going to do worse than Clinton did? Um, And there were all these sort of phantom stories about or or phantom claims about the sort of phantom Clinton 2016 Trump 2020 voter. And it's really, really hard to find anyone who was outspokenly supportive of Clinton in 2016 that is now that was pro-Trump in 2020. But people were claiming that there were tons of these secret Clinton to Trump voters that were just going to come out of the woodwork. And so it's easy to start getting panicked. Then you see that uh, North Carolina, which is another state that I predicted that Trump would win, that many pundits predicted that Biden was going to win, you see North Carolina going badly for Biden. Then you see it looks like Trump is about to take Ohio. Uh, now, all three of those states are states that I predicted that Biden was going to lose. Uh, my, if you look at my prediction map, which I've tweeted out, and I'll probably tweet it out again when I do this podcast, or when I pu- publish this podcast, I predicted that Biden was going to beat Trump narrowly by 279 electoral votes to 259 electoral votes. Now, my map predicted that Biden was going to do this primarily by holding all the states that Clinton won and by getting back the most of the rust belt Sands, Ohio. But I made the kind of perhaps unusual prediction that Trump was going to do this, was going to lose this election despite winning Ohio, Georgia, Florida, North Carolina, Texas, and Arizona. Now I got Arizona and Georgia wrong, but I got Florida, North Carolina and o- Ohio and Texas, correct. But I so I was not expecting Biden to win those states, but it was more a matter that of the fact that if Biden had won any of those states, it would have essentially been game over on election night and we would have been we would have sort of known, okay, Trump's going to lose this big. Uh, but as it was, It was it kind of was more of a nail biter. However, interestingly, the New York Times, which was doing sort of an election tracker that night, was still predicting uh, against my prediction that Biden was going to win Georgia. So there were a few moments, though, that night where I sort of started to think, okay, I think Biden I'm kind of thinking Biden is actually going to pull this off. And one of the moments was um, when Fox News called Arizona for Joe Biden. I was very surprised, or at least I should say mildly surprised, that, that, that Arizona would go for Biden. But I remember thinking, OK, Fox News is not going to prematurely call a state for Biden that Trump actually won. They've been some of Trump's biggest enablers for really the last four or five years. Um, so if basically if Fox News thinks that the Republican candidate has lost Arizona, the Republican candidate has probably lost Arizona. And that indicated that, okay, it looks like Trump is doing significantly worse than he did last time because he won Arizona by several points in 2016. Uh, And then another big kind of turning point was when Joe Biden, one of his main staffers, and the conservative commentator Ben Shapiro both agreed on something, at least to an extent. One of Biden's main campaign staffers went on Twitter and said, when the votes are counted, we're going to win. And at the same time, Ben Shapiro, who you must remember, had made sort of a big production out of the fact of, well, I didn't vote for Trump in 2016, but I'm voting for him in 2020 and it's all the Democrats' fault, especially trans people. Not sure if he actually said that last part, but with with Ben Shapiro, if he's complaining about someone, you you know that there's sort of transphobia lurking under the surface because that's sort of his modus operandi. But in any case, Ben Shapiro made a big point about how he was voting for Trump this time. And when Trump did his premature victory speech announcing that he had won, Ben Shapiro basically did a tweet dressing him down and saying that Trump had not won yet, and that it was very irresponsible of him to say this. And I remember thinking, oh boy, Ben Shapiro must really think Trump is going to lose, because otherwise I don't think he would have made that point of sort of calling Trump out. And it's pretty rare that Ben Shapiro and one of Joe Biden's staff agree on something. So those were some moments that were, you know, making me feel better. I did not sleep much that night. Um, But one of the things I discovered that night was that they called Maine, and I believe Minnesota, both for Biden. And those states were big reliefs, uh, even though neither of those states has a large number of electoral votes. But the reason they were reliefs was that those were states that Clinton had won, but done worse in than most Democratic presidential candidates do. And if if Trump had actually managed to pull off wins in either of those states, it would have basically been a serious warning sign, okay, he's about to win big. Because if Democrats would lo- were to lose even Maine, and- Maine or Minnesota, then that really indicates that they're sort of uh, up shit's creek.